We come now to our time of worship in the Word of God. Would you open with me to Matthew chapter 26, Matthew 26. We are looking together at Jesus and his disciples first in the upper room and then as they make their way out to the Garden of Gethsemane. Last week and this week are actually preparatory sermons laying the foundation for what is really the heart of this passage that we will look at next week. For next week, we're going to see Jesus telling his disciples that they would all fall away from him that night, warning even Peter that he would deny Jesus three times. And Peter, of course, defends himself and argues that he would never deny the Lord. And then Later on in that passage, we see Jesus praying to the Father three times that if it be possible that this cup would pass from him. That's really the heart and center of the passage, and that's where we're going next week. But last week and this morning, we're looking together at those spiritual provisions of strength and preparation for times of difficulty and times of trial. Those are spiritual resources that God gives to us for all of the Christian life, not just for times of trial, but during times of trial there seems to be this highlighting of the importance of things such as fellowship and prayer. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. We're going to look at the spiritual benefits of fellowship, the principle that we see throughout our passage, varying degrees of fellowship between Jesus and and his disciples, and ultimately Jesus alone with the Father in the garden. And then second, we're going to look at the spiritual provision of prayer, that as we face all of life, we're to pray without ceasing, but there is also this heightened expectation that during times of difficulty, there would be also a wonderful, glorious focus on prayer. So the strengthening of fellowship, the strengthening of prayer, as we prepare for, as Jesus and his disciples prepare for the cross and the trials that will accompany the cross of Christ, principles that will help us as we face trials in life. And then next week, we'll look at the heart of this passage. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for recording for us in the four Gospels the importance of these events from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane, hours ahead of our Lord's crucifixion. We see the events unfolding that lead to his betrayal, to his arrest, to several mock trials, and ultimately where there is a cry from the crowd, crucify him. It is for this that Jesus came into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. And it is through his holy life and his atoning death and resurrection on the third day that has secured and guaranteed the salvation of all of your people. And for that we are eternally grateful. I pray this morning as we Again, look at those spiritual principles that you provide for us, those means of grace that you have designed to strengthen us for all of life, to encourage us in the good times and the bad, 
through simple and greater trials. We're going to see our Lord making use of those means of grace and exhorting his disciples to do the same. For in this passage, first in the upper room and then in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see the strengthening of teaching, of singing together, of the Lord's Supper, of prayer, of fellowship. Truths that are often neglected by many who profess to know Christ as Savior. And yet you have not called us to neglect any of these spiritual resources in our fellowship with you as we walk through this world. As you call us to live life in fellowship with you, you have granted to us by your power, by your means, by your spirit, through your word, through the fellowship of the church, such glorious privileges as bringing our prayers to you, as lifting our hearts and voices in song to you, as opening and receiving the word preached from you according to your word. You see the benefit of fellowship, both the full gathered local church and even smaller groups and ultimately private times with you in prayer. All of this designed by your wisdom to encourage us and strengthen us, to prepare us for the battle. That we might not only be salt and light in the world, but that we might be encouragers to our own brethren and that we might walk faithfully in this world. This morning I pray that we would be renewed in our, our heart, our mind, our understanding of the benefit of fellowship with the body of Christ the benefit of fellowship, why you have called us to gather together and the strengthening that that provides. And also, Father, why it is that you call us to pray. For each of these, first and foremost, are expressions of our fellowship with you and collectively of our fellowship with you. It is first and foremost about walking with you and glorifying you and knowing you. And so may we not neglect prayer. May we not neglect the fellowship. May we not neglect the word. May we never ne neglect singing together. May we never neglect the Lord's Supper. These are not merely ritualistic, rote, legalistic practices like the Pharisees, although some may practice it in a legalistic fashion, but for the believer who understands by your grace, these are means to strengthen us, to invigorate us, to grow us, to mature us, to prepare our lives for what lays ahead. Teach us now about the benefit of fellowship and prayer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, again, it's a great privilege to open the Word of God with you this morning. This morning, we're also looking at Jesus and His disciples, starting in the Garden of Gethsemane, excuse me, starting in the upper room and leading to the Garden of Gethsemane. We're just hours before the cross. We've been considering together 
starting last week, those spiritual means by which Jesus prepared himself and his disciples for the trials that lay ahead of them. We even began to touch on that two weeks ago. And so we see in this passage that there is tremendous emphasis upon spiritual means that God has provided for the believer, for our daily strength and our strength in trials. Spiritual means such as teaching and prayer and fellowship and singing in the Lord's Supper. These are the very same means we are to use in our lives and the very means that we see used by Jesus and his disciples as the cross grew ever nearer. We saw last time that Jesus' crucifixion had been predestined from all eternity and prophesied several times in Scripture. And so really all of history has been preparing or had been preparing for Messiah's arrival and his death upon the cross. And so there is a historical divine sovereign preparation for the cross that God provided. But then Jesus and his disciples are immediately preparing for the cross and the trials ahead. And we saw last week how part of that preparation is to sing praise to our God, our God who is not only always infinitely worthy of all praise, but we also saw how praise and the expression of the believer's joy and hope and confidence in God is a true source of comfort in the midst of trials and in all of life. And this morning we're going to consider from our passage two more spiritual means for spiritual strength. Number one, the strengthening of Christian fellowship. And number two, the strengthening of prayer. And so with that in mind, starting in the upper room, I would encourage you to either open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, or if you would like to see the harmony that exists between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, I have again for you this morning a color-coded harmony of the account of Jesus and his disciples in the upper room and then in the Garden of Gethsemane. So literally beginning in John 18 in verse 1, we read this, when Jesus had spoken these words. That is a reminder that prior to going to the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus had had an extended teaching time, which reminds us that the teaching and reading and studying of the Word of God is key for our strength and our walk with God in this world. And then following the order of events, Matthew 26, verse 30 says, after singing a hymn, we saw last week that this is a reminder that our songs lifted up to God are points of great joy and encouragement for the brethren as we sing of the worthiness of our God. And then we continue to read in this harmony of events that after speaking and teaching and singing a hymn, he went forth with his disciples. They went over the ravine of the Kidron. There's a valley between the eastern wall of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives to the east. It's a, it's a valley. It's actually pretty fascinating. I watched a, a video of a man who literally walked by foot from the eastern wall of Jerusalem up to the Mount of Olives. It was a, a beautiful thing to sort of retrace visually the steps that Jesus and, our, and his disciples would have taken. And so they make their way across the Kidron out to the Mount of Olives where there was a garden. So the Garden of Gethsemane is 
uh, just on the western slope, the, the beginning slope of the Mount of Olives opposite the city of Jerusalem. And it says that going to this garden, Luke twenty two thirty eight tells us that this was his custom. And then we read again in Matthew verse 31, Matthew 26, Then Jesus said to them, to his disciples, You will all fall away because of me this night. As it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even if I have to deny you, I will uh, die with you. I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. And then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. We're going to look at that prophecy of Jesus next week where he says they will all fall away and Peter's denial. But let's continue reading in our passage. Again, verse 36, Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John. And he began to be grieved and distressed. And then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little way beyond them. Luke tells us about a a stone's throw, and he knelt down, and he fell on his face, and he prayed, saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Luke 22 gives us this interesting added insight. It says, Now an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him. And being in agony, he was praying very fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood. When he rose from prayer, then Matthew tells us he came to his disciples. He found them sleeping. Luke tells us it was because of sorrow. And Peter, and, and saying to Peter, he spoke, So you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And Jesus went away a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it. Your will be done. And he came and again found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And they did not know what to answer him, tells us Mark does. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time. And the implication is the same prayer, for the next phrase says, saying the same thing once more. And again, we're going to look at that next week. There's something very significant that's going on here in the heart of the passage. Notice that Jesus says to Peter, you will deny me three times. And then Jesus prays to the Father three times. And there's a, an important connection there that really gets at the heart of the passage. I'm almost chomping at the bit to preach that to you, but I want to finish our preliminary study to this morning looking at the, the preparation uh, for trial and for all of life both in Christian fellowship and in prayer. Because what we find in our passage before us is many events of fellowship throughout this text. It is critical that we are strengthened by fellowship. Fellowship first and foremost with God and with one another before God. We need 
to gather faithfully and regularly in fellowship with one another in the power of the Spirit as we congregate in worship of God with that congregation to which we have joined ourselves in order to prepare and strengthen us for all of life and for the trials that we will face in life. This is all about how we walk with God faithfully in this life by making use of the means and the resources that he has given to us, which includes, among other things, the faithful fellowship with the local church. Now, the preparation and strengthening for trials isn't the only reason why we gather together, but it is an essential reason as to why God calls us and commands us to regularly and faithfully gather together in person with the local church so that we might be strengthened and edified and prepared for all of the Christian life. We need to be in Christian fellowship with the church and with the whole local church to which we have joined ourselves. It's wonderful to have Bible studies. We're to get alone with God every day of our lives. We should have family worship times. But a part of the Christian life is gathering with the church, with the elders of the church and the deacons of the church to practice all of those things, those spiritual realities and practices that God has given to us for our Christian life. We have a lot of people today in the world who profess faith in Christ who, who do not regularly gather with the church and there are not providential hindrances that are preventing them. They just simply are avoiding the fellowship of the church. It is very common today to hear individuals give excuses for why they do not assemble with God's people, but those are excuses that are not well-pleasing to the Lord. We need to gather for fellowship. God has created us for fellowship, first with Him, and then with Him as we gather as a congregation in order to worship Him, in order to grow in Him, and in order to minister to one another. This is why, for example, why we have the many one another commands in the New Testament. There are many commands and practices that are key and central to the Christian life that you, you cannot carry out faithfully apart from the fellowship of the local church. Just listen to a few of the one another commands before we get into our text for this morning. Uh, John chapter 13, verse 34. We just finished a series on love, and this is a key part of why we gather together. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And we saw that that's not mere sentiment, not just, oh, I love the church, but that is how we love one another. It's the way we love each other as we are in fellowship together. This is the mutual love of Christian fellowship, which makes gathering together as an entire church most necessary for our spiritual well-being. Another one another that we find in Scripture is Romans 12.2, or excuse me, 12.10, which says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor, so that our love for the church, for the gathering of the church, should be a devoted love. We're to be devoted to one another in love. Another one another command is Romans 14.19. It says there that we are to pursue the things which make for peace 
and the building up of one another. This is why we find in our text that it is the fellowship that very often builds up and strengthens and encourages one another for daily life. You will not get all of the encouragement and building up that you need by being a Lone Ranger Christian who, who operates largely apart from the body of Christ. So there is in the church fellowship this mutual strengthening aspect of building up one another. Romans fifteen seven says, therefore accept one another just as Christ also has accepted us to the glory of God. We aren't just like cliques that, that have our own little group and then we disappear and separate. We're to know each other and love one another and welcome one another. There's to be interaction with the, with the whole body so that we're familiar with everyone in the congregation as much as is possible. This is one of the great benefits of a smaller church is we can really get to know each other. There's really no excuse for not knowing each other well. There are so many other instructions that are one another commands in the gospel that are key to our gathering together. Another is Romans fifteen fourteen, which says this, Concerning you, my brethren, I am also convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and, listen to this, able to admonish one another. And that word admonish means to warn each other, to rebuke or to correct with biblical instruction. That is also key for our strengthening one another to help guard each other from sin and from error, from the temptations that come upon us as we are separated. As we gather together, there is that admonishing of one another. When there are offenses against one another, Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And there are people who avoid fellowship today, who avoid fellowship for the sake of, I don't want the conflict. And there's so many faulty people who have hurt me in the church fellowship. I just don't want to be a, a part of that anymore. And that really short circuits a major part of the Christian life in this world that is the, the reality of repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation within the body. Yet to avoid the church, to try to not have to face any of that, is to misunderstand one of the great purposes of gathering together in church fellowship. This gives us an opportunity to truly exercise uh, grace and mercy and long-suffering and repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation with one another. And dear beloved, this is the only time in this life you will ever have that opportunity because in eternity to come, you will never wrong each other. You'll never be wronged by one another. This is the one life that you have the opportunity to demonstrate to others the grace and mercy, love and forgiveness that God has given to you in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he said, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. I want you to forgive each other as God in Christ has forgiven you. We need to be around each other, though we should not be trying to hurt and offend each other. We need to be there around imperfect people, and we need to bring our imperfect self into fellowship with other people so that we can enjoy what it means to operate in the power of the Spirit so that we can learn to truly love, get along, welcome, accept, and demonstrate to that, that fallen world around us the uniqueness of the salvation of God and the power of God at work in God's people. And if we are avoiding that, avoiding the complexities and the potential hurt that, that might come by sort of separating out from people we have missed a major part 
of the Christian life. We're to be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving. Another one another before we get to our main text, Ephesians 5:19. We saw this last time that we're to sing to one another. Sing to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Yes, we're singing to God, but we're also sort of expressing our joy and our teaching toward one another as we sing and make melody in our heart to the Lord, Paul writes. In Ephesians 5.21, we see another one another to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. We need to be around each other to serve each other, to be subject to each other in the fear of Christ. Instead of sort of staying aloof and off by ourselves, we need to, to be subject to one another. Another one another verse, command, 1 Thessalonians 4.18, therefore comfort one another with these words. Again, we see the strengthening, the encouraging of the body of Christ. We aren't to just sort of go off and, and sit in a cave somewhere totally isolated from God's people. We're to take advantage of the encouragement of the body. There are times to go and get alone with the Lord, as we will see with Jesus here in the garden. He goes, goes off and, and prays alone to the Father, but we also need the entire body of Christ that God has called us to fellowship with. We're to, we're to comfort one another. First Thessalonians 5.11, therefore encourage one another and build up one another. Do you see the strengthening that is to be there in the presence of God's people. There is to be this mutual comforting and encouraging and building up. They are all critical for our spiritual strengthening during all of life and especially during the trials, temptations, and difficulties of life. And to not be a part of a body like that and to not interact with the body is literally to, to short circuit and to, to, to narrow down uh, the, the full joy and benefit that God wants us to derive from the body of Christ, which he loves and for whom he died. Another interesting one another command is James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. This is not the confessional booth of Roman Catholicism. This is the accountability of the local body where we might go to one another and ask for prayer and encouragement and help as we face the trials and testings and temptations of this world. Two more verses that are one another commands before we get into our text. First Peter 4.9 says this, Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Enjoy one another's company. Have each other into your homes. Don't complain about it, how it's an interference in life. And then verse 10 of First Peter 4 each one has received a special gift that is a gift from the Spirit. Employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. In a study we did back a couple of years ago, as we looked at the spiritual gifts, we saw that every single believer has the indwelling Holy Spirit. And everyone who has the indwelling Spirit, which is every believer, has been gifted by the Holy Spirit for service, for ministry to the local church. The minister is not just the guy behind the pulpit. That's one ministry in the church. It, it, it is one of those sort of maybe predominant ministries in the sense that it is seen by all, but it is not necessarily more important. Even the smaller gifts the Bible emphasizes are important for the body. And so if you are a Christian, you have the Spirit. If you have the Spirit, you're gifted for serving in the church. And 
uh, we're told by Peter, if you have, with those gifts, you better use them to serve the body. Now, this is an issue today because we have a modern American and Western church that is very much used to church fellowship being you sit, you watch, you go. And the idea, idea of serving one another and helping one another is something that is foreign, but this is not something we can escape as believers. It should be our joy to serve one another as God provides, as we have resources, and as God has gifted us. So we are called to the joy, the comfort, the strengthening of Christian fellowship. And what we find in Matthew chapter 26, as the cross and its time of testing is just hours away, there are several examples of varying sizes of fellowship right before the cross. It's almost concentric circles getting smaller and smaller from uh, first Jesus and all of his disciples, all of the, the, the 12 up until when Judas leaves, uh, in the upper room before the cross. And then they go out from the garden, uh, go out from the upper room to the garden, and, and then Jesus sets apart eight of the disciples by himself. And so at first there's, there's all of the disciples and Jesus. Then there's just eight of them set apart by themselves. And then Jesus goes a little bit further into the garden and he takes three more of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they all go on together. So a smaller group of fellowship. And then finally, we find Jesus in direct personal fellowship, just himself and God. And I believe that this is a reminder that as Christians, we need both the fellowship of the whole church. There are times to gather together in smaller groups and there are times to get alone with God. And these should all be a regular part of our life as Christians. We need this. All of those sizes of gatherings are essential to the Christian life. You can't just go off and have a Bible study with two or three people and have that replace the fellowship of the church because there needs to be pastors and there needs to be deacons and there needs to be baptisms and the Lord's Supper and, and church discipline and the Spirit distributes the gifts for service to the whole body so that we might each contribute our own ministry and service as God has provided for us. But there are also benefits to smaller Bible studies. In, in, in our family's life, we, we meet together for family worship, and then Kimberly and I will worship together, just the two of us, and then we will have our individual times alone with the Lord. We need this. You need the church's fellowship. You do. For your health. And you need closer godly friends, maybe within the fellowship, that you can meet together for a time of prayer or counsel or discipleship or Bible study. And then every day, you and I need to get along with God. We need to go in our closet, as Jesus said, or into our private inner room to get along with God, just as we see Jesus doing here in the Garden of Gethsemane. Fellowship is by God's design, to be a key part of our lives. And we must not neglect those spheres of fellowship in our lives because they all play their part. And as we will see in a moment, God actually commands the regular faithful gathering of the, the entire local body, of an entire local body with elders and deacons on a regular basis. Yes, there should be additional times for gathering in smaller groups, but we also need times collectively together, for we are a heavenly 
and eternal family with Jesus as our Lord and the Father as our Heavenly Father. We read, for example, in Ephesians 4 and verses 4 to 6 regarding the body of Christ, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And so we have in Scripture both the concept of the universal body of Christ, which is all believers, both on earth and in heaven. But because we are limited by time and space in this life to our ability to fellowship with the whole body, the main emphasis of gathering together in the New Testament is of believers with particular local bodies and specifically the local body to whom they have joined themselves. In fact, in our study, in our new members class, we're going through a number of scriptures which demonstrate that, that in the New Testament, individuals were identified with specific local bodies of believers. Even if they were off on, say, a mission trip visiting and ministering to Paul, Paul still spoke of that individual as belonging to the number of a particular local body. And so we need these times of fellowship. And then ultimately, again, we need to get alone with God in daily fellowship with Him. Now, in our passage, right before Jesus and His disciples go out to the Garden of Gethsemane, they had been gathered together in fellowship in the upper room, right? And it was in the upper room as they gathered together that Jesus, for example, served them and showed His humility and foreshadowed the cross by washing their feet. It was in the upper room that Jesus preaches to them what is often called the Olivet Discourse. And so they had a time of service, they had a time of preaching. And that upper room discourse is in John chapter 13 to 17. It was in the upper room in that fellowship in which Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper as they were gathered together in the upper room. Again, the Lord's Supper picturing Jesus' death for sin. It was in the upper room also where Jesus prays his high priestly prayer on behalf of his people and in front of the disciples that God had given to him. And it is then in Matthew 26 and verse 30, also in Mark 14, 26, toward the end of that time of fellowship in the upper room that we are told that they sang a hymn together right before they went out to the Garden of Gethsemane. And so if you think about it, the upper room, discord, uh, the upper room fellowship there was, there was service, there was teaching, there was the Lord's Supper, there was prayer, there was the singing of hymn, all in fellowship together collectively. Does that remind you of anything else? The regular faithful fellowship of the church. That's what we do. There's teaching, there's singing, there's the Lord's Supper, there's prayer. Every month we have that Lord's Supper together. That is a regular weekly gathering of the church. And since this is how Jesus prepared himself and his disciples for the trials that lay ahead, what does this tell us about our need for this kind of fellowship, right? So if, if our Lord is strengthened by this and his disciples are, are strengthened by this, even though they have a period of defection where they run away, but they do return by the grace of God, since they need this, and Jesus exhorts them to the benefits of fellowship. Surely we need this as well. We are no better than our Lord and no better than disciples. We, 
We need to gather to hear the preaching of the Word of God. It's wonderful that we have um, the benefits of listening to sermons online, but that is not a replacement for the time of teaching in the midst of God's people to hear the Word together with God's people. We need to congregate to pray together. We need to sing in the midst of God's people. We need to corporately partake in the Lord's Supper together. We need to gather together to serve one another. And we are no better than Jesus and his disciples, that's for sure. And if they needed all of that, surely we need those same things for our spiritual strength and edification. And let's be clear about Jesus. He is God, the eternal Son, in the flesh. He is absolutely perfect and infinitely strong, and yet our Lord, out of love for his Father, existed constantly in fellowship with his Father, praying to the Father, singing to the Father, teaching about the Father. And so we clearly need that too. In fact, it is Jesus who initially arranged this time of fellowship with his disciples in the upper room. Listen, for example, to Mark chapter 14, verses 13 to 17. We read there that he, Jesus, sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, go into the city, and a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water. Follow him. Wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room in which I may eat the Passover? Now listen to this. With my disciples. Do you hear the fellowship in that? I want to eat the Passover with my disciples. Fellowship. And he tells these two disciples, he himself will show you a large upper room finished and furnished and ready. Prepare for us there. We ought to be preparing for worship each week, praying for that time of corporate gathering, setting our alarm clocks, getting to bed at a good hour on Saturday night, and being in bathing the the whole body in prayer throughout the week and then as we gather intentionally that we're to seek to encourage and benefit and bless one another as we worship the Lord together in song. And so regarding preparing the upper room, it continues there in Mark 14 that the disciples went out, came to the city, and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. That's fellowship. He is with his men. And so they all gather together in fellowship. In fact, listen very carefully to Luke chapter 22 and verse 15. This is a part of why we are going through these means of strengthening because I want us to hear together how fellowship is connected to the coming suffering of Christ. Luke 22:15 in the upper room, Jesus says to his disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. That's fellowship. Before I suffer. Did you catch that? I want to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. This is a part of the fellowship and the strengthening for both them and also our Lord. He didn't pass through life without prayer. He didn't seek to operate simply on his own omnipotent power he, he enjoyed fellowship with his Father and he utilized every single spiritual means that he has given to us by which we are to walk with the Lord. So Jesus earnestly desired a time of fellowship before his suffering. And you see, dear beloved, God is a God 
who from all eternity has existed in fellowship with himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the very nature of his being. He says to Adam in the garden before he created Eve, it is not good for man to be alone. Some people think that they don't need other people, but that is uh, something has developed incorrectly in that person's thinking where they have that mentality because in reality God has created everyone, especially his people, to exist in fellowship. We need this. We need this time together. And so God in his very being and his very perfections is a God of pure, everlasting fellowship. And through the salvation provided in the gospel, God has designed for his people to live in fellowship with him and in fellowship with one another, both now and into all eternity. When we avoid interaction, somewhere there's a spiritual struggle and weakness that is tempting us which is keeping us from wanting that interaction. And we need to learn the interaction by the power of God's Word and His Spirit, how to increasingly interact with, to love on the body, to be with God's people. Listen to the Apostle John, what he says about our salvation and our resulting fellowship with God and our resulting fellowship with one another in the Lord. 1 John 1, 3. Speaking about their testimony about Jesus, John writes, What we have seen and heard we proclaim to you, so that you too may have, listen to this, so that you might have fellowship with us. So that the call of the gospel is not just a call to fellowship with God. This is that problem with that Lone Ranger Christian mentality. It is also a call to fellowship with the body, with the bride of Christ. There's something wrong to say you love the groom and hate the bride, or you want to be with Jesus, but you don't want to be with his bride. We proclaim the gospel in part so that you might have fellowship with other Christians. You ever heard that or thought about that before? That's a part of the Christian life. And he says, indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Our fellowship with one another is not apart from God or apart from the Son. It is in the Father and in the Son. And we have been called into fellowship with Him and through Him to have our fellowship with one another. Regarding that fellowship, I want us to listen very carefully to a sampling of some of Jesus' words in His high priestly prayer, which He prayed on behalf of His people in the upper room before the Garden of Gethsemane. And I want us to notice that, that as he prayed, he prayed regarding not only his fellowship with the Father and our fellowship with one another, but also our fellowship with the Father and the Son. Listen to John 17, verses 20 to 24. Jesus prays to the Father, I, I do not ask on behalf of these alone. He says, I'm not praying just for these disciples in the upper room, but for those also who believe in me through their word. That's you and I when we hear the gospel and we read the scriptures. We believe in Christ. We believe in God through the Spirit's testimony, through the written word of the apostles and the prophets. So we believe in Christ through their word that they may all be one. Did you catch that? So, so that is 
heart and center of the Christian life is that there might be a unity of the body of Christ, that we all might be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you. So there is a, a connection, a similarity of our fellowship with one another, just as the Son has with the Father. So avoidance of fellowship without true due cause is to seriously misunderstand even the Trinity and the relationship between the Father and the Son enjoyed from all eternity because the prayer of our Savior is this, that we would be one as the Son is one with the Father. That is an astonishing statement. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I in them, you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. Key part of the, the Christian life of our growing up in Christ is to learn to function in the unity of the fellowship of the body, not apart from it, but to learn unity in it, in the fellowship so that the world may know that you sent me. One of, the, one of the testimonies to the world of the reality of the gospel and, and Christ is that we exist in joyful harmony and fellowship with the gathered body of Christ that shows the power and the love and the grace and the mercy of the gospel to even the watching world. I want them to be perfected in unity so the world may know that you sent me and love me even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with, with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you have loved me from before the foundation of the world. You see there, Jesus celebrates his unity with the Father. He calls and celebrates and asks for the unity of his people that we might be one with him as he is one. And then he says, I want them with me also that they may see my glory. There is really no concept in Scripture of a believer united to Christ who is not also united to the local body. Again, we're not talking about unusual providential circumstances where a believer is, say, in prison for their faith or in a hospital because of illness or something along those lines. But the, the, the principle of Christian life is that as we are one with God, we are also to be one with one another. In fact, it's interesting that the Greek word for church is ekklesia, and, and that word literally means to be called out from, but that's only part of the word, called out from and called to gather together. Both of those elements are contained in the meaning of the word ekklesia, ek out of, kaleo, klesia, to call out from, and to call out from, listen, for the purpose of congregating together. This word ekklesia is used some 77 times in the New Testament, and it was used in ancient times of a town crier who would come bringing news from the king or the government where he would call people out of their businesses, out of their homes, but not to just go off wherever they wanted to go, but he called them to come and gather together for a meeting. So the idea of ecclesia is to call out from, 
to call together to congregate. That's the meaning of the word church. And, and so you might be spiritually a part of a universal body of Christ, but an application meaning of this word ecclesia is we are called to be in fellowship with one another. That is key to the meaning of this particular word. It's interesting in the Old Testament, whenever we have the word congregate or congregation used in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for gathering together, when they made a translation of the Hebrew into the Greek in what is called the Septuagint, they, they every time translated the word for congregation in the Old Testament into the Greek word ekklesia, church. And so in Psalm 149 verse 1 in English we read David saying, praise Yahweh, sing to Yahweh a new song and his praise in the congregation of the godly ones. But in the Greek translation that was made before Jesus was even physically born into this world, that would have read, again translating into English, praise Yahweh, sing to Yahweh a new song and his praise in the church of the godly ones. This is all throughout the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this principle of congregation, of congregating together with God's people to worship. Another common word used in Scripture in regard to uh, our gathering together as those who are saved is the Greek word koinonia. That word literally means fellowship. Fellowship, as we've seen, with the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and with one another. Listen to another key verse in this regard. 1 Corinthians 1.9. This is one I think you should highlight and underline in your notes. It says there that God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That's the Christian life. We're called unto fellowship with his Son. But as we've seen in 1 John 1, 3, it isn't just fellowship with the Son, it's fellowship with one another. He says, what we've seen and heard, John says, we proclaim to you also so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So the idea of functioning in fellowship with God and not functioning in fellowship with the church is a very strange, unbiblical concept that is totally foreign to the Word of God. In fact, it's interesting that after Jesus' cross and resurrection and after Jesus ascended to the Father, after showing himself over 40 days to many witnesses, it's, it, it's just fascinating that the first thing the disciples do is they gather again in the upper room. Acts chapter 1, verses 13 to 14 says regarding the disciples, this is after Jesus is in heaven, when they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, the same upper room. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas and Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and, and Judas, this is a different Judas, the son of James. And then listen to these words of fellowship. These all were with one mind continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Fellowship is central to the Christian life. The first church in Jerusalem begins in Acts 2.42 saying that they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread 
into prayer. You know, we have the breaking of bread of the Lord's Supper, but I, I believe that one of the reasons God created mealtime is not just to nourish us, but like, for example, with a family. It should call you to gather again and again together as a, a couple and, and as a family. And this is why we have mealtimes every month as a church, because it calls us together to an aspect of fellowship that God has provided. This is why I would encourage you to be there for that first Sunday of the month uh, meal or have each other in your homes and, and break bread together. It's a great time of fellowship. They were in fellowship. They were breaking bread and they were in prayer. So important is this regular time of faithful fellowship with a particular local body to which we have joined ourselves that Hebrews chapter 10 verses 23 to 25 says, let us, notice the the fellowship plurality there, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And then this, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. He said, okay, when you gather together, you come together, you have this in mind. You are thinking, how can I be used of the Lord? Lord, help me. And you pray for these times that you come to minister, that you might encourage and exhort the brethren toward love and good deeds. It's not just receiving a sermon and going. It is being there with the brethren during times of fellowship, during mealtimes, serving one another, but also being together to encourage each other in our faith, to stimulate each other, to love God's way, as we've seen in this recent series on love, and to do good deeds, that is, to, to obey the Lord. And then this statement, Hebrews 10, 25, not forsaking our own assembling together. Now, this is not talking about those who entirely abandon church fellowship. It is not talking to those who head off into some false religion or cult. He's talking to Christians who sporadically, periodically miss the fellowship of the church without due cause because we, we know this from the next statement. He says, don't forsake our own assembling together, as is the habit of some. He's saying some of you just miss church too often when you don't really have to. And, he, and God the Spirit says, don't do that. Don't make it a habit to be here and not be here, be here and not be here, when, when there's nothing providentially truly hindering you. Don't make that a habit. Instead, encourage one another, it says. And all the more as you see the day draw near. The day uh, not only of Christ's return, but the day as we get closer to being with Jesus. One of the things we don't want to do as we get older is to stop attending fellowship because the attendance of fellowship is to continue all the more as we, we get closer to seeing Jesus. We need to be there to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, to encourage one another. Because we're not just in the Christian life for ourselves. We're in it for the body. We're in it together for the glory of God. And so as we regularly gather in faithful fellowship, one of the goals of that gathering is to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, to encourage one another. As the day of our being with Christ draws ever nearer, the Holy Spirit says to every Christian, don't you ever make it a habit to miss the fellowship of the church. I would say this as a Christian above your duty to going to work, above your duty for school, above 
hobbies, above every other thing, our highest duty is our duty to God, and part of our duty to God is to gather with God's people. So, we're to do this. We need the spiritual encouragement and stimulation. We need the mutual accountability and encouragement. If you, if you think you don't, then you have a problem because Jesus did, and he encouraged his disciples in the church to this as well. God has called us into salvation, not just to fellowship with him, but into fellowship with one another in him, both in this life and in eternity. You're going to be in a real problem if you don't like fellowship, and all of a sudden in heaven you find yourself surrounded by people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. A throng beyond number. And so in our text, as the cross approaches, as a time of trial will befall Jesus and his disciples, they are first in the upper room all together, and then they need also to have fellowship with one another and, and with God, and so they move to the Garden of Gethsemane into a more secluded location where they can then break off into smaller and smaller groups until we finally see Jesus in the garden alone with the Father as he prepares for the cross. This is why they leave the upper room and head out to Jerusalem, heading east, to be in the garden, which is where we find decreasing sizes of groups. Look at verse 36 of Matthew 26. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, minus Judas, obviously, Judas Iscariot, that is. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over and pray. And, and this is eight of the disciples that he says, you guys, you stay here. And then look at verse 37. Jesus, Jesus then took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John. So, so Jesus and three of the disciples go a little bit further into the garden, and he's with them, takes them out from among the eight, and now there's a fellowship of four, Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And then Jesus leaves them, and as we see in Scripture, he goes a stone's throw away, which means not too far away, about, about as far as you could throw a rock. So they can probably see him or even hear his prayers. So you see the, the various sides of fellowship, the whole group in the upper room, then eight of them, then four, and then Jesus leaves them, and there's three, and he goes off by himself to be with the Lord. And there is benefit to all of those types of gatherings. Look, for example, when Jesus gets aside with his three disciples. Look at verse 37 and 38. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, began to be grieved and distressed. It's interesting that you understand this experience that sometimes when you're going through trial and difficulty, you go and get with your closest friends, and then your heart really begins to sense the trial and the grief. And he says to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. The time of the cross had arrived. The bearing of the sins of his people was just hours away. The taking upon himself of the holy and just wrath of the Father was soon to befall him. And Jesus is alone with three other men, Peter, James, 
in John, and he shares with him his deepest personal feelings. The, the words there, uh, deeply grieved, is one word in the Greek, paralupos, and it literally means to be incredibly very sad, to have painful sorrow. It can refer to physical pain, spiritual pain, or both. And I think he was experiencing both. You ever been in such spiritual sorrow that your body hurts? You ever been in such physical pain that your soul hurts? He's deeply grieved. Is it not true that sometimes during those times we need our closest friends with us? He says, remain, which means continue, stay here, and keep watch with me. In fact, it's interesting, the, the word... The, the word for keep watch, he says keep watch, in the Greek means be on the alert and remain fully awake. And what, is it, what happens each time he comes back from prayer? They're, they're out, they're asleep, and he actually rebukes them. Can't you stay awake with me just for, for a season? You ever been sitting with friends or family in the hospital early in the morning as someone's undergoing surgery or maybe facing the end of their life? We just need those people nearby keeping watch with us. And I think this is largely for our benefit. But Jesus also entrusts in part his heartache to them. He shares it with them. And he says, I want you to stay here. I want you to be alert. I want you to pray with me. We know what it's like, don't we, when we have a facing, pressing trial. There's a need for counsel need for prayer, a health crisis. Sometimes we, we need to just have our loved ones, our dear brothers and sisters in Christ with us. One of the, the honors that as a pastor I often get is I will often get a call at all hours of the day and the night. Someone's dying. Someone has just died. I keep a change of clothes just at the foot of my bed so I can get up get dressed and go to the home or the hospital and to just be there. And sometimes we pray and sometimes I'll say something, but sometimes it's just standing there, waiting, praying, watching. So again, first we have everyone in the upper room, then we have the eight together, then, then four and then three, and then Jesus alone with the Father. And we're going to look at much greater depth next week at Jesus time alone with the Father. That's really at the heart of the passage. But I want us to see that there's this need for fellowship. And then very quickly, within the context of fellowship, we find throughout the passages in the upper room and in the Garden of Gethsemane, repeated references to prayer. Now, in, in every real sense, all of our preparation strengthened for all of the Christian life, whether by singing or fellowship or preaching or prayer or by any other means of God's provision and grace, it's always from the Lord, it's always with the Lord, it's always in the strength of the Lord, it's always for the glory of the Lord. But what we find in our passage, both in the upper room and then in the Garden of Gethsemane, is that over and over again, there are repeated references to prayer. We see Jesus praying in front of his disciples. We see him exhorting his disciples to pray. We find Jesus alone in prayer to the Father. This is as the cross is growing ever nearer. During times of difficulty, do you find your heart drawn to prayer because you trust the Father and you love the Father? Just as we saw last week, 
our hearts are, join, are, are drawn to praise. I hope in all times, but also in times of tra- trial. Literally, for Jesus, this is a day filled with prayer as the cross approaches. Let me show you one example. Turn to John 17. We'll just have a couple more minutes. We'll wrap it up. John 17. We find Jesus alone praying to the Father. And what he's praying about are are many blessings connected to that which follows the cross. Look at verse 1. Jesus spoke these things to his disciples. And then he lifted up his eyes to heaven. This is why I believe this prayer was prayed in front of him. And he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. The hour of trial had come, but it was, it was ultimately for the glory of the Son and, and for the glory of the Father, even as you have given him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. It is also for the blessing of his people. This is eternal life, he says, that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is salvation. We've been called into fellowship with God through the work of Christ. He says, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men you have given me out of the world. They are yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. He's calling upon the Father and praying to him in regard to his people that the Father gives to him. He says, now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me I have given to them. They receive them and have truly understood that I came forth from you. They have believed that you have sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. In the upper room, before Gethsemane, before the cross, Jesus prays for his disciples. Jesus prays for us. Prayer is critical for our lives in fellowship with the Father. We should desire such fellowship with the Father. And then as he leads the 11 disciples out from the upper room and and down to the Garden of Gethsemane, we look in verse 36 of Matthew 26. He says to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. And then after taking Peter, James, and John a bit further on from the eight, Jesus told them to remain and to keep watch as Jesus went to pray. Look at verse 39 of Matthew 26. Then he went a little beyond them. Luke says that it was about a stone's throw away. And it says he knelt down and he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Just prayer. He prays before his disciples. He exhorts his disciples to pray. He prays alone with the Father. In fact, as a part of the harmony that I've pulled together, listen to the number of references that we find in this account of Jesus in the garden praying to his Father and how often the, the word prayer in its forms is used in these verses. Luke 22, starting in verse 43, says, Now as an angel from heaven appeared to him, strengthening him, 
and being in agony, he was praying very fervently. So that as he moves deeper and deeper into agony, he isn't moving farther and farther away from prayer. The more he moves into agony, the more he is drawn into prayer, into fervent prayer, so much that sweats of blood come forth from his face. The next verse, verse 45 of Luke 22, when he arose from prayer. And then Matthew 26, 50 says he then came to his disciples, found them sleeping, which is, again, the opposite of what he commanded them to do. They found them sleeping from sorrow, and he said to Peter, you men could not keep watch with me for an hour? And then this instruction, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. They're about to enter into great trial. And he says, I want you to pray because you're about to enter into trial. The word for trial and temptation are the same in the Greek. Keep watching, be on the alert, keep praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, you're willing to pray, but your flesh is weak, you've got to battle your flesh. Now think about this. Jesus says, pray for testing is coming upon you. And what don't they do? They don't pray. And what happens when Jesus is arrested? They scatter like the wind, except for John and Peter. And Peter ends up denying Christ three times. There's great truth that we're going to see there next week. That he denies Jesus three times. He is unfaithful three times. Jesus prays three times, and he is resolved to obey the Father. We'll look at that next week. But again, Jesus rose from prayer, comes to his disciples, they're not praying, tells them to keep watching and praying. And then in verse 42 of Matthew 26, he went away a second time and prayed, saying, Father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Verse 43, and he came and found them sleeping again, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time. And the implication is the same prayer, because then it says, saying the same thing once more. Prayer in the upper room, as he brings the disciples into the garden. You sit and pray, you sit and pray, you watch and pray. He goes aside and he prays fervently again and again, as the cross grows ever nearer. Now, let me ask you a question. If Jesus prays this way, and he calls upon his disciples to watch and pray, what do we need to do? For all of life. For all of life. I wonder how often, if you think about it, if Jesus had come to us, would he say to us, why are you not watching and praying? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. This is why we have to deliberately not only have hearts of prayer, but make sure that we're carving out time for prayer. We can pray all the time, but, but make times of prayer. Prayer for you alone with God. Prayer for you and your spouse alone with God. Prayer for you and your family alone with God. Times of prayer with God's people collectively. But Jesus' disciples were not prepared they had not been strengthened as they needed. They were not watchful in prayer as Jesus had commanded. So, dear beloved, prayer is critical for all of life. We're to pray at all times. We're to pray without ceasing. We're to labor in prayer. 
But even with Jesus, we see this intensification of prayer as his trials draw, draw ever nearer. And I want to show you some final thoughts before we close. Connected to Jesus getting alone with the Father in prayer. We need to get alone with God in prayer. We should want to out of our love for him. It's a joy and privilege to have access to the Father in prayer through Jesus. We're to take everything to him in prayer. But I want us to see that Jesus, our Lord, was devoted not only to praying with his disciples, but going off alone to pray. Luke 5.16, Luke 5.16 says this, quote, Jesus would often slip away into the wilderness and pray, unquote. Luke chapter 6, verse 12 this is when he had healed the, the individual with a withered hand, and it says it was at that time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. The whole night. On another occasion when Jesus was staying at Peter's house, we read in Mark 1, verses 35 to 37, in the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, and he left the house, and he went away to a secluded place, and he was praying there. Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount says to us, you go get along with God, go into your closet, into your inner room, and pray in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. We need the corporate prayer, we need smaller times of prayer, we need to go along with God in prayer. And so in closing application, we've seen this morning that we need fellowship for the Christian life, for strength and growth in the Christian life. We've seen that we need prayer. When the church started meeting in Acts chapter 1 in Jerusalem, it says they were with one mind, continually devoting themselves to prayer. In Acts 12, verse 5, when Peter had been arrested, it says Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church. We need smaller groups of prayer as well. Colossians 1.9 says, For this reason we, that is Paul and his close companions, have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with knowledge, with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and in understanding. Prayer with the congregation. Prayer in a smaller group. 2 Thessalonians 1.11-12 To this end we also pray for you that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. Do you pray like this for one another, for the body? Get a copy of the church roster. It's a great way to pray for people in the church. And so we have congregational prayer, smaller group prayer, and then a couple of verses of individual prayer Jesus says again, I just referenced this, Matthew 6, 6, but you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret what is done in secret will reward you. And then Paul mentions a man named Epaphras in Colossians 4, 12. And he says to the Colossian believers, Epaphras is with Paul, ministering to Paul. He says to the Colossian believers, in Colossians 4.12, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, 
always laboring earnestly in his prayer for you that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. Dear beloved, could I encourage and exhort all of us that we labor earnestly in our prayers for one another. As I heard someone once ask, is your prayer such that it could be say you're laboring in the prayer? That it's an earnest laboring for the body. That we would pray these things for one another. That's why several weeks ago I created a a list of things to pray for drawn directly from Scripture. A number of you got that handout. I'll make sure you get one if you need one. But it just goes through all of these prayers. In fact, it lists all of the prayers of the Bible. And for what we should be praying. And so, dear beloved, we need the fellowship of the church. This is a part of how God provides His strength for us as the Spirit works through our brethren. And we need prayer. The faithful, fervent prayer of a godly man avails much. We need to be people of prayer. Well, next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at Jesus talking to his disciples and to Peter, who says, I'm not going to deny you, Lord. And then we're going to zero in our attention at the heart and center of this whole passage. We're going to look at Jesus praying to the Father, what does he mean when he asks, if possible, let this cup pass from me? We're going to see Jesus' unwavering resolve. We're going to see Jesus as the only qualified Savior. And we're going to see the cross and the resurrection as the only possible means of salvation. But that's next week, Lord willing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Thank you for all the preparation, all of the spiritual resources that, that Jesus fully used, even though being God in the flesh, which he demonstrated and exhorted in his men, which is also exhorted to us and repeatedly in Scripture that we would gather together and pray together and praise you together and partake of the Lord's Supper together and serve one another and minister to each other. We need that fellowship. We need prayer. We need the broad fellowship and prayer time of the church. We need smaller groups as well, and we need to get alone with you in direct fellowship. Father, thank you for showing us all of these, these critical, essential parts of living the Christian life and especially preparing us for the trials, challenges, and temptations of this world that we might make full use of all these means of your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise team. If you would come forward at this time, we're going to wrap up our time together with a hymn. God's word is so good. He gives us all that we need to know and understand for life, to walk with him. Stephen, what's the final hymn for this morning?